And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Gospel of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have sent Jesus Christ to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony to that fact in the Old Testament, in the epistles, in the gospel, in the psalm. Lord, thank you that you are our Savior and you alone, and you are our King and you alone. Help us to act upon that truth. With thy Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, today we finish our series that we began on September 9th, believe it or not. Seems like a long time ago. We finish the Apostles' Creed. And we finish with the last statement of the Creed which is really a double statement. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. It's the final phrase of the creed. And, you know, there's lots of people that don't understand the two parts to it. So today we're going to look at that together. It's interesting when you talk about the afterlife most people believe that there's something after this, right? You've probably experienced that talking to your friends. That, you know, when death is thought about or when you're at a funeral, um, when somebody that you love has passed away, you think about something after this. A 2014 CBS poll taken found that three out of four Americans believe in a heaven or hell in the afterlife. When you think about that, that's quite a few people. Not just believing in something spiritual, but believing that there is eternal reward and eternal punishment. As Christians, we believe that to be true. But as Christians, we believe in a two-part belief. Number one, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Now, how many times do we just kind of roll over that in the creed? You know, maybe, maybe we pause at it like at a speed bump, you know. Sometimes in, in, in more liturgical, uh, higher churches, so to speak, people will cross themselves when we say the resurrection of the body, right? And that's a little bit better because then we're at least thinking about this fact that this body will one day re be redeemed. But then we just kind of roll along into eternal life. Amen, right? 
There's something beyond this, however, that for Christians is specific. It's something that while the Bible's teaching and the creeds of the church's teaching are very specific, I find that a lot of Christians are fuzzy on. Why is that? Well, look at the passages that we read today because I think they give us specifics. The first one was lengthy, I grant you. But did you notice the picture that's painted from Ezekiel chapter 34? And if you have your Bibles with you, open up with me to Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 13. What's going on in this passage? Well, what's going on historically is that Ezekiel is prophesying to the people of Israel who have just found their capital desecrated. The capital, Jerusalem, has been destroyed by barbarians, by heathens, by pagans. And so Ezekiel is speaking for God to that people and he's telling them not to lose hope. Not to lose hope. Because God still is in control here. Now, that translates pretty well to our context today, doesn't it? Do you ever feel like God's not in control? Do you ever feel like he's not in control of your life or the things that are whirling around you? He still is. He still is. And so Ezekiel's prophecy to the people of old is the same prophecy to us. And as this is one of the cases where that prophecy is fulfilled several times. Okay, and I know I'm getting into the scholastic weeds here, but bear with me for a moment, okay? Oftentimes with prophecies, there's several fulfillments of the prophecy. You and I like to think when we look at a prophecy, okay, he says this, that means that. He says this, that means that. And we try to pick it apart. But if you look scripturally, what goes on in the prophecies is that they're fulfilled once, twice, sometimes three times. And this is one of those prophecies because this is one of those great passages in Ezekiel that foretells Jesus is coming for his people. That his people, his sheep, are not going to be abandoned. That despite the fact that their capital has been leveled, God's not forgotten them. But it also speaks through that, through Christ, through his death and resurrection, to the church today, down right to you and me on a personal level, and speaks to us and says, God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't forgotten that you're one of his sheep. God hasn't forgotten that sometimes it seems like everything's been leveled around you. You can still rely on him. That's what's going on in this prophecy. So if you have Ezekiel 34 opened, look at verse 13 with me. Here's the promise. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture 
on the mountain of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. And you get that imagery continuing in the prophecy of God as the shepherd and his people as the sheep. And even though the sheep trample each other, right? Even though the sheep mess things up big time, God doesn't abandon them. God doesn't abandon them. He continues. God's been planning something here in Ezekiel for hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years in his salvation of his people. And it's not some fuzzy afterlife. It's not some vague idea that there's some great beyond that we'll go to. It's something real. It's something dynamic. It's something colorful with streams and food and, and peace and rest, all of those things. As 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church, it's written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So ultimately, that new reality is anchored in the reality of the deep mysteries of God. We believe in the resurrection of the body as Christians because that's outlined very clearly in the Bible. Don't miss it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 was a selection of that was our second reading from the epistle. And it's one of the clearest visions we get from the New Testament of what awaits us. It's a section that's read traditionally at Anglican funerals because it's so clear. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. It's in your epistle reading. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15, verse 20. What's the fact that we rely on? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Do you see how God's grand plan is coming together? Do you see how in Jesus' resurrection, that is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy? One of them, anyway. What does it mean to be a first fruit? What's that mean? It's, it's one of those idioms, right? What's it mean to be a first fruit? Not a last fruit. Not a leftover, a first fruit. Yeah, the first among many, right. The first among many. And so what we see here is that Christ being raised from the dead is the first among many, the first fruit of God's unfolding plan. Jesus' death was necessary. His resurrection was necessary. But more than necessary, it's proof of hope. It's proof that someone has gone through that barrier, someone's torn through death and come out alive. And that's Jesus. And you and I, friends, have that certainty of hope because of what he's done. Because of what he's done. The first fruits, that means that we follow, we're following him in his footsteps to that eternality, to that eternal life, to that life that cannot be taken away. It can't be crucified out of you. It can't be shamed out of you. It can't be tortured out of you. 
It's a life that cannot be taken from you. That's the hope you have in Jesus Christ. But what's the specific fruit of the victory? Look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what's he saying there? That Christ has been raised. Yes, and we set our hope on that. Yes, but we will be raised at the end. We will be raised at the end in bodies. Look at verse 42 through 47. This is why this is so important. We'll skip over the discussion of the types of bodies, right? But you see what's going on there. In verse 42, so it is with the resurrection from the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. So do you see what's going on here? That you and I, when we go through death, are not going to be some kind of disembodied spirit floating in another world. That's not Christianity. Even just a vague idea of heaven, that's not Christianity. Christianity says that you and I at the last day will be raised bodily. And this perishable body will be made imperishable. It will, what has been sown and what will die and for some of us, as we reach closer and closer to the end, that's not a bad thing, right? As things start falling apart and not working, what is sown and slowly dying is going to be restored. And you know what? It's going to be restored beyond even what you were at the height of your peak. Whether that was your 20s, whether that was your 30s, whatever that was. That's the promise. Transformed heavenly bodies. A specific promise that after death, all will be restored, and then some. And Jesus is the prototype. How do we know this? If Jesus is the first fruits, where's the evidence? Well, we're not gonna take a full tour of it. That'd take a lengthy sermon series. You hear that a lot from me, don't you? There's a lot in God's word. But we see that that new redeemed body can speak, for example. In Mark 16, 14, Jesus comes back to the disciples after he's been raised, and he scolds them. Interestingly, he scolds them because they don't believe the women that went to the tomb and found him alive. It's a body that can be touched. Jesus comes back and says to his disciples, see my hands, my feet, that I am myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, right? So we see a body in Christ that has senses, that eats, that converses, that can be touched. We see in Luke 24, it's a body that engages in conversation, that sits around the dinner table with people that he loves. You recall the story Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, right? Jesus is walking with the disciples and he comes to table with them and he stays with them and he eats with them, he breaks the bread 
and suddenly they recognize who he is. That kind of body is the body that you and I are promised. How do we know? Because that's what Jesus had. To believe in the resurrection of the body is, again, not a soft, fuzzy spiritual belief. It's real. It's true. It's another reality. It's a heavenly reality. But if anything, it's more real, not less real than this one. J.I. Packer writes in his book on the creed, skeptics like Fred Hoyle and Bertrand Russell, uh, folks from the early 20th century, philosophers, have told us that the thought of an endless future life horrifies them, for they said it would be so boring. Evidently, they have found this life boring and cannot imagine how human existence could be made permanently interesting and worthwhile. Poor fools. Poor fools. You know, indeed, if life everlasting were uncertain and vague, it would be terrifying, wouldn't it? I would dare say that if life everlasting were merely an extension of this life, that is, if we just kept going on the trajectory that we're on, that would be terrifying, <laughs> right? Might even be hell. But life everlasting that we recite in the creeds and that we're promised is not boring. It's not hell. It's a promised embodied life where all our desires and needs are met and satisfied. For it's the perfect presence of a creator who fashions all pleasures, physical, social, and familial, and all joys that you've experienced here. It's that creator that's made all those things that has gone to prepare a place for you. And we shall be changed not so that it's so unfamiliar that we're you know, off on, heart, on clouds playing harps, but so that we can desire the things that our Lord desires more properly, so that we can enjoy the joys and the pleasures that have been prepared for us more completely. And Jesus, in that Ezekiel passage, who, where is he? Did you catch it? It's one of those great lines in the Ezekiel 34 passage. Where is Jesus? Remember, Ezekiel's writing this passage hundreds of years after King David, right? And yet, it mentions King David, doesn't it? Mentions the servant of David. That's the image of Jesus. So here we see the good shepherd, the monarch of his people, finally come to make all right. Friends, I believe in the body the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's the certain hope in which we as Christians believe. It's that that we confess. It's that that we should be clear about when we talk to our friends that don't know Jesus and have some vague reality, a vague idea of what lies after this world. Credo, we started on September 9th. I believe I believe in the triune God. Why? Because I hang everything on that reality. I can't do anything outside of that reality. Do I put my trust, do I put my belief in politics or social change? Heck no. All I have to do is open up my browser. Do I put my belief in money or security? Heck no. 
All I have to do is look at my bank account. Do I put my belief and trust in modern medicine? Modern medicine's a wonderful thing. We all know people that modern medicine doesn't have the answer for. Heck no, don't put your trust and your belief in those things. Those are the things that the world put their trust and belief in. Now we get to a more sensitive one. Do I put my trust in people? Do I hang my everything on a personal relationship? As much as I love the dear people that God has given me, heck no. Because they all have let me down. And I've let them down too. But I put my whole trust and belief in God. In God we trust because he's the only one who's faced it all and won the victory. In God we trust because he's the only one that has all of this and the next reality in his hands. All the physics, all the workings, all the mechanics, everything. I trust in God because he's the king of the universe. And ultimately, it's only in him that I'll be able to stand or probably kneel and confess my unworthiness but say, thou art worthy. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive honor and glory. It's in his worthiness that I have resurrection and life everlasting. That's something worth hanging your hat on. That's something putting all of yourself into. That's something that is the promise of the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, and the joy forever. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen.